from PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we air part two of our interview with attorney and author John Malk, whose work helped pave the way for a federal statute on religious land use. Later on the broadcast, Mary Morrison explores the ways in which today's popular music distorts and disturbs our sense of body image. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is author and attorney John Malk. Mr. Malk has practiced law for over 30 years and is the author of Paul on Trial, the Book of Acts as a Defense of Christianity. In his law practice, he has often represented churches and ministries in the Chicago area regarding religious land use. In 1998, John Malk was invited to testify before a congressional subcommittee on church zoning issues. His work in this area was instrumental in the drafting of Our Lupa, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act of the year 2000. John Malk, welcome to Things Not Seen. It's good to be here, Dave. Well, for our listeners to begin to understand your work and the events that led to the passage of our LUPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, we need to start to look back to the history of some laws and legal decisions. And one place to start might be with a 1990 court case uh, called Employment Division v. Smith, which some interpreted as stripping individuals of their religious rights. Congress reacted by passing the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, RIFRA. The Supreme Court then basically took the fangs out of RIFRA at the state level but left it as good law at the federal level. And the response then was Congress looking for some way to salvage a protection of religious freedoms at the state level, and do I have it correct that they that they they lit upon religious land use as the way to salvage religious freedoms at the state level? Well, the the two aspects that they were able to put together in RELUPA, land use and institutionalized persons act, and those were the two sort of uh, cutouts that uh, Congress decided. Uh, would pass constitutional muster. Now, you had been doing work in religious land use, but had you intended to have your work become the model for this law with Arlupa, or what was what were the circumstances that led to your work in religious land use being a key part of Arlupa? Well, uh, I I didn't know where where God was going when we started Club. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Club is the is the civil liberties for urban believers. Yes, yes. And, and and consortium of inner city churches. But when we had this crisis with uh, Riffer being declared unconstitutional, and uh, people got together and said, "How can we change this?" I had enough land use. Uh, a savvy and experience, and said, "Here's a couple things we can do. We need a we need a land use law. We can be part of a broader law or or not. And a couple of the key features of that are that churches have to be treated at least as well as all the secular assemblies. So we had zoning codes that were allowing community centers and clubs and 
and lodges and theaters and all sorts of assembly uses, but not if they were for religious purposes. And to that degree, we said the government's overstepping its bounds because it's regulating what people are talking about and their religious exercise, not what the land is used for. So that was one area. The other area was most communities, maybe 50, 60 percent, didn't have any area within the community where you could freely put a church. You had to, you had either zones where they weren't allowed at all or zones where, well, we'll let you have it if we think it's okay at this particular building. This type of overregulation meant there was no freedom to have a church in a particular community. You had to get permission, and the permission was often denied. And, of course, people wouldn't say we're denying you because you're African-American or we're denying you because you're Hindu. They would just say you're not producing taxes, so we're not going to not going to do it. So we needed to free that up, and, and RELUPA requires that every community have at least one zone where religious groups can freely go without government approval. So if I'm hearing you correctly, what you were observing at the civic level was a type of discrimination that sometimes would be racial, sometimes would be economic, sometimes would be religious, but it would be it would be couched altogether as economic discrimination. You're not contributing to the tax base, but the practical result would be uh, a racial exclusion or an exclusion of a type of religious practice that they didn't like. Yeah, that's a practical result. I mean, the reality of human motivation, you can't... Uh, uh, break that down fully. You can suspect that it may be racial, but uh, people have amalgam of, of motivations, and there may be many people making the decisions on the zoning board or on the city council, some prejudicial, some economic, some just confused, some I don't want my community to change, and some subconscious. I'm not prejudiced against anybody. It's just these folks aren't our folks. <laughs> and, you know, we do have our subconscious prejudices. So this was all about giving freedom as a practical matter to more people to come together and associate and, and, and set up their churches and, and flourish in that way. Because we had so many problems with club in the city of Chicago, I was able to take that and testify before Congress, the House Subcommittee on the Constitution, uh, heard this testimony, and that was the basis of of Congress passing the law. So, if I'm if I'm hearing you, you were doing this work in the Chicago area in the middle and late '90s. You were yes. invited to testify before Congress. Yes, and that testimony became a seed kernel for this national law, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. Yes, but if I'm if I'm hearing the timeline correctly. You testified before Congress, and then you went back to your business in Chicago, and you didn't know that these wheels were turning in the legislature, or did you? The wheel, I knew the wheels weren't turning. Oh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> I, I knew it was bottled up, and uh, the municipalities didn't want it to pass, and so it, it was going nowhere. And that's, that's when uh, Theodore Wilkinson, who was pastor and, and chairman of the club group, called for prayer. So going back to the prayer story, that's when the prayer began. It was after the legislation was tabled for about two years, and it was just going nowhere. And, and we believe that prayer moved God's 
hand, and God, by his spirit, touched people, and it became law in one day. So you had you had given a testimony before Congress. Congress had taken up part of that testimony as a seed kernel for ARLUPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. It then got resisted by the, the municipalities. It had stalled in moving forward, and then local pastors and other local believers began calling for prayer meetings. And if I'm hearing you correctly, these prayer meetings were were uh, across racial and economic lines. They were largely Pentecostals, but they were they were fervently believing in the power of prayer. There were three three prayer meetings specifically for this purpose, at, at which I had to get up and explain what we were praying for. And there would be 80, 100 people there uh, who were unfamiliar with with the legal system, and then, as I said before, even even with English in, in many cases, and say, this is why we're here on a Wednesday night, three Wednesday nights in three different churches, and we had those specific specific prayer meetings. So I'd never been to a prayer meeting like that before, where there was one really specific purpose, and you had all these people who weren't directly affected, but they were moved by God, and somehow the, the this is how God worked through this circumstance. And if I'm hearing you correctly, you attribute the power of those three prayer meetings to the what you and others have called the mirac- the miraculous passage of this of this stalled law on religious land use into national law in one day. Yes. And <laughs> and have you ever heard of Congress being unanimous about anything, Dave? <laughs> I, I certainly not in in the last two sessions of Congress, so I, I I will tip my hat to the to the miracle working. This is things not seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Mauck, author of the book Paul on Trial. Mr. Mauck is an attorney who specializes in religious land use issues. Mauck's work in the 1990s was a cornerstone of the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, also known as ARLUPA, which became law in the year 2000. Well, you were working in the late 90, 1990s, and ARLUPA became law in 2000. And I'm wondering, in the 14 or 15 years since its passage, what has been the positive impact of ARLUPA? Well, we, we've, we've seen many positive impacts, uh, particularly in new churches being able to start. Uh, it's taken a while, but many communities have rewritten their zoning codes to bring them up to date to the constitutional and federal uh, requirements. And so uh, n- now I can look at a, a zoning map of a particular city and see zones where churches are actually freely allowed. So we like to think that there are probably thousands of groups that have been able to establish their meeting places or buy buildings and uh, re- rehab the old grocery store or or, uh, or a shopping center and, and, and put in a place of worship that wouldn't have been allowed to do that in the past. Of course, there's no way to measure exactly how many. There's still a lot of problems, and there's still a lot of feeling uh, among those who aren't sensitive to uh, religious use that we don't really need these uses, that they're a drag on the community. So there's still a lot of resistance, and when we have uh, special use applications or permit processing, we still have those problems, but now we're able to cite court cases and cite the Religious Land Use Act uh, to help influence the particular uh, zoning board 
or we can go to court. And uh, we have gone to court. We haven't won all of our cases. It's not an unlimited right, but it uh, is certainly one that's much better established in the judicial mind and in the social mind. Prior to RELUPA, people wondered whether the right to use a building for worship was part of free exercise. And many courts had said, no, I mean, everybody needs a building, and it's nothing free exercise about it. But with RELUPA and with court decisions, it's become pretty firmly ingrained that this is integral to having the right to free exercise of religion, that it's the right to get together, the right to associate, and the right to speak that all come together in having a place to meet. So that's the major change in the in the paradigm. Now, when I was in Atlanta, there's a famous story that was told in the 1990s uh, about Atlanta, about a, a Baptist tabernacle that had been converted into a, a music venue called the House of Blues. And the story that was told at the time was that James Brown was was slotted to to play at the House of Blues. His his bus pulled up. He realized that it was a church, and he refused. It, it was a former church. It had been decommissioned, and he refused to play in it. And so he had. They ended up having to set up the stage outside, and he played an outdoor concert because he refused to play in this Baptist, this former Baptist tabernacle, because it was now a music venue where they would be serving alcohol. And so my, this leads to my question. We, we're talking now about our LUPA, the Religious Land Use and Institu- Institutionalized Persons Act, being used to protect locations where people can place churches. Has it ever been used in the opposite direction uh, against businesses that want to occupy spaces that were former churches to say, no, this is still in some way consecrated space? Uh, no. Okay. I haven't, I haven't heard of that. And so I so that was a stretch for me, just an interesting legal question that I was asking just because I was remembering this story about James Brown. Well, you, you've mentioned that there were some legal challenges over the last 15 years to Arlupa. Uh, could you give us any examples of, of particular cases where, where that challenge has, has come up for religious land use? Yeah, one, one, of the, uh, one of the major remaining issues is size of religious assembly. The zoning codes are pretty much still one size fits all, and they will have a zoning code that says churches are in these areas and these areas alone, not recognizing that churches come in all sizes and flavors. It may be uh, seven uh, people Baha'i meeting in an apartment, and they meet for study and, and prayer and maybe they grow to 10 or 12. Or it may be a group that's renting the local high school gym on Sundays. Or it may be a mega church that really needs a whole bunch of acres. And because these zoning codes are one size fit all, uh, we've particularly having problems with small churches. We have a case right now in federal court from a meditation group from Korea called MAUM, M-A-U-M. And they meet to meditate uh, once a week or two, three times a week in small groups, maybe seven or eight people. And and they bought a house in Lake Forest and they wanted to worship there. But Lake Forest zoning code and Lake County zoning code, I should say it's unincorporated Lake County, in um, Lake Forest in Lake County, uh, they said you can't have your church there, even though it can't, it's uh, at most seven or eight people at one time 
uh, uh, meditating. So we need we need to push against these codes that aren't size specific, and uh, that ends up uh, hurting a lot of the small groups that we talked about. And I hadn't realized this, but since you've said it, it, it now a light bulb went off that religious land use is not just about standalone buildings, but religious land use also applies to private housing, doesn't it? Yes. Well, and I hadn't realized that before. So, so the possibility of of having of having people gathering for say a Bible study or a meditation group, like you mentioned, the group Malm, I didn't realize that 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 the legislation could even restrict against that. But am I? Is is that true? Yes. Yeah, they at, at first Lake County said you can't meet because you're not a religion. You don't have uh, you're just Eastern meditation, and that's something different. And so we had to go to court and win on that point. And they they changed their tune after we went to federal court on that. But then they then they said, well, uh, maybe you are a religion, but uh, we don't want you meeting in residential, uh, mix, mixing residence and um, and religion. And that's pretty ridiculous in our point of view. From their point of view of trying to control things, and this is all residential, not a problem. But as you point out, people have Bible studies or they have Super Bowl parties. I mean, why not? Graduation parties or family, family gatherings. Uh, What's so offensive about people coming together for a religious purpose that you have to have that type of government control? But this is happening, of course, throughout uh, the country, that there is more and more regulation in in every area of, of life. And so we feel it's important to fight to protect the right of people to, to be free from government control. We're not asking for government subsidies or government favoritism, where primary push is just to remove the roadblocks to let the people come together to have their own work and their own ministry and their own groups and associations. We're a decade and a half past the uh, the passage of our LUPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, and I'm wondering if you have any, looking back now, any favorite memories from that process of getting the, the act passed that you'd care to share? Well... <laughs> Those those prayer meetings were probably my 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 favorite, uh, especially going to the Hispanic group, which was so enthusiastic. And I don't speak Spanish, but I had an interpreter, and uh, I couldn't tell as people were shouting and praying and crying, and and the band playing. By the way, this is the prayer meeting with the band going on, uh, whether they're speaking in tongues or speaking in Spanish. <laughs> But it was a lot. It was a lot of fun to see the love and 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 concern that uh, that people had, not just for themselves, but for other believers and for, and for those who were not believers, um, so that they could have the opportunity to hear the message too. If you're just joining us, our guest today is John Mauck, who played a key role in the law known as Arlupa the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. You work uh, as a principal in a law firm here in Chicago known as Malkin Baker, and that law firm explicitly identifies itself as a religious law firm. And if you look at the website, uh, it, it's, it specifically calls out as a Christian law firm. Now, 
I've often heard that businesses in the 21st century are advised to avoid making explicit public religious commitments. And so I'm wondering, has it been hard or difficult to be an explicitly religious business in Chicago? And if if you can speak a little bit to what the advantages and perhaps the disadvantages have been to having an explicit religious identity as a business. Well, the, uh, certainly to the advantages. Uh, I'll, I'll quote one of my favorite Bible verses. Uh, you got to serve somebody. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, of course, because that's Bob Dylan. But you have to decide what your priorities are. Is it is it money? Is it service to other people, or is it uh, service to God? Those are those are different. Those are different options and worldviews. And if your worldview is that there is a God, He has created us, and we're finding our purpose for that, then we might as well be open about that's who we are. It, it doesn't mean that we're against other people or. Uh, we try to love everyone and and serve everyone. Uh, sometimes it's difficult because people don't think we should be that way. We should be in the mold of keeping our religion uh, out of our business, but they don't have to do business with us. Uh, mostly this is voluntary association. So I imagine they're clients we haven't gotten and clients we have gotten because of who we are. But we want to let our light shine. We are primarily followers of Jesus, even moving away from the term Christian because that has all sorts of political <laughs> negatives, and, and, and we don't want to be in that sense. We just want to say we love Jesus, we want to serve him, and this is how we're living our lives together. Many people are uh, who don't follow Jesus are totally fine with who we are. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest is attorney and author John Malk. His Chicago-based law practice, Malk & Baker, specializes in religious land use issues. His work in this area helped pave the way for the passage of the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, passed by Congress in the year 2000. This is one of several episodes we have produced for Things Not Seen dealing with religion and the law, you can find links to all those shows, as well as more information about John Malk and his work, at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest is attorney and author John Malk. As part of his Chicago-based law practice, Malk specializes in religious land use issues. His work in this area helped pave the way for the passage of ARLUPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, passed by Congress in the year 2000. You can find out more about John Malk's work at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. If I'm hearing correctly what you've said in the broad sweep of this interview, you explicitly as a firm identify as followers of Jesus and as a religious law firm but that has not led you to exclusively represent Christians or Jesus followers. But in, in your religious land use litigation, it sounds like you have represented all different types of religious practice. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, it's mostly Christians because that's who we are connected with, and, that, and that's the majority of people in the U.S. But uh, we've represented Muslims. We had a big federal case in Morton Grove, which we eventually won to allow a mosque to be built there and uh, represented Hindus and Eastern religions. 
our feeling is that everyone should be free to pursue the truth. And we don't want to have a situation where we're like some foreign countries that don't allow churches to be built. We think everybody should be allowed to pursue their view of truth and hear the messages of the others. And then people can sort out for themselves what they think is real and and, uh, and where they want to direct their own lives. Well, I, I moved recently from Tennessee, and in the last five years, there has been a lot of, of uh, coverage of a mosque that has been trying to be expanded in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And the resistance to that mosque has been largely on religious land use levels. And in many cases, it has been evangelical Christians, it seems, who have who have led the charge against that mosque. And so when you talk about your your firm, Malcolm Baker, having a religious basis and that that has led you to to champion the religious freedoms of, of all different types of believers, I guess I'm wondering, has there ever been pushback from certain wings of evangelical Christianity or other types of, of Christian beliefs saying you should only represent Christians, you should not represent those of other religious faiths? Have you ever encountered that? Oh, of, of course. And if you believe something is the truth, uh, you want to express that and, and see that uh, uh, go forward. But the well, when I had this question early in my career, I, I uh, called a, a wise mentor and asked him, should I represent the Scientologists who want me uh, to help them get their zoning here in Chicago? And I, I don't agree with Scientology, but uh, what, what do you think I should do? And this was uh, Moish Rosen, who was the founder of Jews for Jesus. And Moish said, represent them, uh, charge them as much as you can, <laughs> get get paid. But God does not forbid Satan from speaking. And he cited the book of Job, where Satan comes right in to the counsel of God and, and accuses Job. He says, when Satan speaks, we resist, but we don't keep him from speaking. So whether it's a truth we agree with, we're not sure about, or disagree with, let people express it. And this is, this is very core American. And I, I think it does go back to our history in Europe where religion was imposed and the desire to let people be free. I and mean, this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And how are we going to know the truth unless we allow it to be expressed? I don't think we get to truth by by imposing it on people. We're conducting this interview a couple weeks after the Supreme Court decision in Burwell versus Hobby Lobby. And that decision affirmed that closely held private companies can exercise religious preferences with regard to employee benefits. And if I'm incorrect about any of that, please feel free to correct me. But I wonder, looking forward, uh, in the wake of Burwell v. Hobby Lobby, what do you think will be the long-term impact of this Supreme Court decision? Well, the, the Supreme Court decision, uh, as you may have read, I would agree with the characterizations. It was very narrow, and so it wasn't it wasn't designed to 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 be sweeping, and it was a close decision. It was a five-four decision. So I I don't think that 
it's going to carry a lot of weight. It's going to be uh, one step in many, and it's a question of where we're going as a society. Do we want to impose a vision of what is a, a good and a just society, which I think Obama's trying to do, or do we want the society to be able to come up with its own own definitions? And uh, sometimes those might not be the same as, as the... Uh, the governmental or thoughts from on high, and that that's that's going to continue, David. Uh, I, I think as long as we have people, we're going to have people wanting to impose their view of of truth on others. Well, John Malk, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. It was, it was a pleasure. Our guest today has been author and attorney John Malk. Mr. Malk has practiced law for over 30 years and is the author of Paul on Trial, the Book of Acts as a Defense of Christianity. In his law practice, he has often represented churches and ministries in the Chicago area regarding religious land use. In 1998, John Malk was invited to testify before a congressional subcommittee on church zoning issues. His work in this area was instrumental in the drafting of ARLUPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act of 2000. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this is part two of our interview with John Malk. This is one of several episodes we've produced for Things Not Seen, dealing with religion and the law. You can find links to all those shows, as well as more information about John Malk and his work, and part one of this interview, at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. If you're on Twitter, please take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. If you want to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at Dalt Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And one more plug. If you haven't discovered our daily Religion Moments podcast yet, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we've got all of them archived on our website, so even if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore the entire catalog just like you were traveling back in time. After the break, we hear from our intern, Mary Morrison, about the ways in which popular music has held up a mirror to the way that we see our bodies and ourselves. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. I am the father of a young child, a daughter, and as I watch her start to explore the landscape of femininity in our culture, I am terrified especially when it comes to the Disney princesses. There's nothing like a Disney movie to take your child from you and turn your child into something that you do not recognize. So it is with great trepidation that I let my child go into this culture knowing full well that everything that she sees and pretty much everything that she hears and everything that she's exposed to is going to tell her that somehow she's too fat, too thin, not blonde enough, or too blonde, too high-pitched, too low-pitched, any of a number of things that can be altered or changed, our culture will try and get her to alter or change. 
The trust that it takes to be a parent, or, let's be honest, just a citizen of our culture, is tremendous. These are the types of issues that preoccupy our intern Mary Morrison as well when she listens to music. This summer, a wave of upbeat, supposedly empowering pop songs came out. A similar outpouring of self-esteem-boosting anthems happened in 2011, with Lady Gaga's Born This Way, Katy Perry's Fireworks, and Pink's Perfect. The music industry has apparently discovered that inspiring confidence is profitable, but like anything that is created to be sold, the message of these songs is often corrupted. Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, 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 bass. When I first saw the music video for Megan Trainor's debut single, All About That Bass, I really wanted to like it. It's a catchy song reminiscent of 60s doo-wop. The music video is cute and retro, all pastel colors and synchronized dance moves. But the song is really problematic. There's a line in the chorus. That encompasses what a truly empowering song should say. Complete self-acceptance. I wish this was the message of the song. However, Trainer's explanation for self-love isn't entirely altruistic. Yeah, my mama, she told me don't worry. By placating a woman's appearance with a man's affection, she is reinforcing the patriarchal idea that women's bodies exist only for men's enjoyment. Trainer isn't espousing body acceptance because it's a healthy mindset, but rather her thesis seems to be, if you're a little chubby, that's all right. Boys will still like you. She is implicitly saying her body shape is the right one and others are therefore wrong. This is similar to the real women have curves craze, but it's no one's place to determine what makes anyone else's body real or acceptable. By referring to herself as junk, she is self-objectifying, reflecting a culture that doesn't respect women or their bodies. Now, I may only have an 11th grade understanding of music theory, but I'm pretty sure Megan Trainor is not a bass. This isn't a deep analysis of her lyrics or anything, but it's important. No matter how many times she tries to assert that she's not about treble... I think she's stuck with it. For an equally retro-cute empowering song, Mary Lambert's Secrets reflects a healthy view of self-acceptance. I've got bipolar disorder. My sh- not in order. I'm overweight. I'm always late. I've got- Lambert addresses a range of issues, including weight, but also mental health, sexuality, and a whole range of what could be referred to as flaws. She lists them, and then ask the critical question. By opening up about all her supposed flaws, she regains power over them and accepts herself. Then, she encourages her listeners to embrace what they don't like about themselves. She offers complete self-acceptance as an alternative to a culture full of shame. Her confidence becomes contagious. 
But just like she keeps me warm, it'll probably take another straight white dude to sample Mary Lambert's amazing work so the masses will finally listen to what she has to say. Here's looking at you, Macklemore. John Legend's song, You and I, gained notoriety when actress and activist Laverne Cox appeared in the music video. The song, however, reinforced some dangerous patriarchal ideas, especially the notion of male gaze, the objectification of women. Because the song comes from Legend's male perspective, the problematic lyrics are not surprising, but they're still disappointing. Yeah, you fix your makeup just so. Guess you don't know that you're beautiful. Try on every dress that you own. You will find in my eyes a half hour ago. His approval of the woman in question half an hour ago suggests that she no longer needs to primp. He already considered her adequately attractive. It's his job to tell her she is beautiful because apparently she is unaware. Her physical appearance exists only for his pleasure. Any self-worth she derives is secondary to his opinion. The objectification continues into the second verse. You stop the room when we walk in. Spotlights on, everybody staring. Tell all of these boys that wasting their time. Stop standing in line, cause you're all mine. These lyrics imply that the female subject of Legend Song is a status symbol other men are competing over. He is essentially asserting that he has already won the prize of the woman, stripping her of her agency and further objectifying her. Conversely, Beyonce basically broke the internet in 2013. She surprised the world with her self-titled album that featured a plethora of opinionated songs. She continued to shock her fan base by releasing a remix of the song Flawless, featuring the rapper Nicki Minaj in August of 2014. Both the original and the remix of the song offer a better version of self-confidence. The lyric appears in both the original and the remix. Compared with Megan Trainor's maternal voice, emphasizing male gaze, Beyonce offers a holistic view, with all members of her immediate family giving her important advice to build self-confidence. Male gaze plays a role through her husband, Jay-Z, but it is immediately echoed with the independent statement, I'm flawless. Unlike John Legend's objectification, Beyonce acknowledges the self-worth she gains from her appearance, but it's only part of her self-esteem, and she declares she is flawless in all areas. Moreover, she encourages this mindset in her listeners. She invites her listeners to join her in total acceptance and confidence. Beyonce samples Nigerian writer Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's TED Talk entitled, We Should All Be Feminists. By including Adichie, the song gains authority as a feminist assertion, rising above the profitable feel-good songs like those by Legend and Trainer. Feminist, a person who believes in the social, political, and economic equality of the sexes. Beyonce solidifies her stance with the addition of Adichie's voice. The remix, featuring Nicki Minaj, is far more explicit than the original. In it, 
fiance addresses the infamous elevator fight between her sister and her husband. Because sometimes go down when it's a billion dollars on an elevator. <laughs> By confronting the public feud and then literally laughing it off, she takes control of her life instead of letting gossip mongers control it. As her first collaboration with Nicki Minaj, the pair represents some of the most powerful women currently recording music. In Minaj's verse, she asserts herself both sexually and financially and addresses her detractors. Minaj refers to both herself and Beyonce as queens, further cementing their role as leaders in what will hopefully become a healthier view of women in pop music. Flawless and Secrets are paradigms of self-empowered music because they offer unconditional self-acceptance. Unlike All About That Bass and You and I, the confidence originates internally without the need for validation from others, especially men. If pop music continues to push feel-good, confidence-boosting anthems, as it most likely will because teenage girls seem to be the only ones who actually pay for music these days, pop music should embrace actual self-confidence. Though healthy messages and profitable messages are rarely one and the same, I sincerely hope Lambert and Beyonce's confidence will be used as examples. This means songs with real acceptance, without external validation, not songs saying, boys like a little more booty to hold at night. Mary Morrison is a senior at the University of the South in Suwannee, Tennessee, where she's the editor of the campus newspaper, The Suwannee Purple. We had Mary here with us for 10 weeks for a summer internship here in Chicago. During that time, we threw a number of challenges her way, from planning events to editing and production of this show and on our upcoming television documentary. She took it all in stride and did a fantastic job as part of our team. So if you're listening out there, Mary, good luck this year. Thank you, and we miss you. Well done, thou good and faithful intern. A quick note about that documentary I just mentioned. It's an hour-long look at the way current U.S. immigration law is impacting husbands, wives, and children here in Chicago and across the nation. The name of the show is Divided Families Responding with Faith, and it's airing on WTTW, the PBS affiliate here in Chicago, at 9 p.m. on Thursday, October 16th. If you'd like to find out more, you can go to the website for the show, csec.org slash Divided Families. Finally, we're happy to remind you that we're now being distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, though we're still figuring out exactly what that means in terms of how you hear us. When we know, you will know. And as always, thank you for listening. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ's Navy Pier Studios, overlooking beautiful Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Kim Tron, Mary Morrison, and Katie Scroggin did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Batnock. Our intern is Mary Morrison. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at NotSeenRadio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's Facebook.com slash ThingsNotSeenRadio. 
And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. can ever guess what your next move will be. I want to keep my interviewers uh, (laughs) off balance. (laughs) Good. John, that was a lot of fun. Thank you.